Welcome, Capital Raisers. Let's talk about making money while also serving an altruistic and philanthropic cause today. Do you think it's possible? You better freaking believe it is. And Matt Ryan tells us how he approaches this in his business. Are you guys ready to raise? Hang out with other Capital Raisers every Thursday at 11 o'clock a.m. PST at our nationwide virtual Capital Raising Meetup. The link is in the show notes. Lastly, shout out to my sponsors, Invest Next and the Family Office Club. With that, it's Capital Research Show, episode 289, and it starts now. Awesome. I have Matthew Ryan on the Capital Razor Show, season three. Welcome, brother. How you doing, man? Doing great, brother. How about you? <laughs> I'm always excited. I love these podcasts. Capital Razor Show Season 3 brought to you by Pitch Decks, our friends of Richard Wilson's company. So, man, for the audience that hasn't met you, I actually just met you. You're talking about development, value add, capital raising. Some of those topics we'll definitely dive into. But for the audience that hasn't met you, man, please let us know a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this space. I started out in 2010 looking for a career. I left my family's company in South Carolina after three years and wanted to move into energy efficiency and green building sector, specifically how you implement energy efficiency and green building in residential and like commercial. Those buildings account for about 40% of energy usage. We thought that was going to be a blossoming, growing industry. The American Recovery Reinvestment Act had just been passed under Obama. Secretary Chu was Department of Energy Secretary they had some really key initiatives that was going to help us kind of revitalize the workforce that had been decimated in the 09 recession. And again, save money for building owners in addition to reducing environmental impact. I did that for about five and a half years, really failed to scale the business and became kind of a glorified contractor, subcontractor, specialist, working with residential homeowners, solving their problems to doing studies for public utilities, nonprofits, working with commercial building owners, including my family's old business, retrofitting lights. We were doing the jack of all trades, master of none. And I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And around that time, 2013, I invested in my first real estate project in a little neighborhood called the Wilmore neighborhood outside of Charlotte. It was a foreclosed duplex that I basically renovated, implemented my energy efficiency, green building measures, got it rented. And that was my first true take into real estate. And it was through my experience with the local community member there, Miss Pam, that the idea for Revive kind of came to fruition. And it ended up being with a little two-page document that I put together called the Miss Pam Project that I took to a local developer. And that was really what would become the genesis of Revive and what we're trying to do at Revive, look, focusing on community revitalization, but also kind of productizing these innovative solutions to real estate that solve both problems with affordability and displacement but kind of broader socioeconomic issues. And so we've been focused on that since 2015. I moved to San Francisco to be at the epicenter of private equity and venture capital. The rest is kind of history. Okay, cool. My first question is actually very, you mentioned the word affordability. And to me, a lot of times I get a lot of calls from people that are developers or that are wanting to step into development and they have kind of a charity focus where they're trying to provide housing by creating communities for specific segments of population like wives from military husbands that don't have a place or abused victims and my first question is typically around like how are you going to make that profitable 
I understand that you want to accomplish something and help people, but if you're raising capital, you want to have the ability to provide great returns for people. Now, some of that stuff that you're talking about in terms of green building and energy efficiencies and getting tax credits and initiatives for builders, I'd like to explore that a little bit. But before we go down that road, tell me about some of these concepts in terms of you having a green approach and a helping the world approach. How do you make that profitable? What's your take? How do you set that up? Yeah, it's interesting because that that very developer that I took that two-pager to, the lasting advice that he gave with me that has stuck with me is he said, Matt, this is a great mission. This is a, a brilliant business model, but you need to understand one thing. You have to make a market-leading return for your investors. Investors have return thresholds. Real estate has to be at a certain level. You need to meet that if you're going to be successful. You find a way to do that and pair your mission along with it. You'll be extremely successful. That was the advice he gave me. It was incredible advice. Fast forward a little bit, what we're currently focused on in the co-living and microdevelopment is interesting in the fact that it's what we call, there's a coined term called affordable by design. And that what that means is that the entry level bedroom price and the model that we've created makes it affordable for people on an area medium income basis. That means like if you're making $40,000, 25 to 30% of your income should go towards rent, no more than that. Otherwise you're considered rent burdened. And giving broad strokes of area medium income, these on a per bedroom basis, these projects are affordable to those people making 80 to 120% of the area medium income. How do you do affordable housing outside of that? As you mentioned, it's a very complex bureaucratic process that's very hard to do at a small scale. Most of the assets that we're focused on are two to $35 million. Unless you're taking section eight vouchers, and doing fix and flips or buying small properties, it's really difficult to implement an affordable housing model for a host of reasons. The major one is that even after all those tax credits, the bureaucracy that you have to navigate, the nonprofits that you may have to create, and all these varying tax models that you have to put together, it's kind of like this big recipe that you have to concoct to make a project work. You're still below the typical return threshold for for-profit development. So some of these nonprofit developments, low-income housing, tax credits, so on and so forth, they may only achieve maybe a 9 to 12% return profile, whereas you know, traditional private equity, real estate market rate developments, we're anywhere in the 12s to 20s. And 12s really much on the lower end of that. And so not only are you having to navigate these complexities of tax credits, grants, so on and so forth, but you're also having to go out into the capital markets and basically say from day one, hey, I need you to invest with me and accept a lower return because I'm doing good. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of capital out there that's willing to accept a lower return because you're doing good in the world, but it is hard to find. It's far fewer and it's a much more niche audience. And that's what we like about our product is that we're actually able to provide a market leading return while also having, again, an affordable rent on a per bedroom basis to these individuals, specifically the demographic that we've chosen, the 22 to 35 demographic. And we don't have to sacrifice that profit for our investors. Okay, cool. And where are you building and purchasing assets right now? Right now we're in Denver and Sacramento. We've got kind of, we call them proof of concepts going on there to establish those markets, establish where we're at in our business plan. And we're looking to ramp up very quickly, up to 100 doors or more in the next 18 to 24 months there, and then expand into other secondary markets that we think have a lot of upside and kind of fit that same profile of a secondary city that's on its 
emerging trends, call it Denver, Sacramento, eight to 10, 12 years ago, especially coming out of last recession. Those were markets that were already starting to see a lot of interest from, from investors and they were becoming proven markets. And we think there's some other markets out there that are emerging now, especially in a post-pandemic world that still have a lot of upside. Okay. So before the show, you mentioned, I was asking you where you developed, you mentioned Denver and Sacramento. On the value add multifamily side, what's your business there? Where are you investing? Is it the same markets? Yeah, exactly. And what we focused on so far is mostly value add opportunities, converting to co-living. Okay. And then like about how many apartments are you purchasing at a time to do that? Most of them are very small scale. So our first project was going to be 10. We ended up with nine beds. It's a commercial office to residential conversion. The one in Sacramento is going to be 20 beds, 8,600 square feet, roughly. So again, very small projects, but kind of taking a page out of what a lot of these developers and operators in the co-living space did. They start small in the market. They test the rental factor. They get established because there is it is hard to get debt. It is hard to get equity, and especially in a new market. This is a new product. And as you know, from a capital side of things, usually that means the debt or the equity is a little bit more expensive. And so for us, it's very much proof of concept, get the rents established, get the operating model in place. And then from there, we'll be able to scale up and ramp up. And we're going to be doing more build to suit, ground up development. We're going to be building specific unit types for this type of rental model. And then also mixing in some traditional studio one bedroom apartments. Okay, very cool. And then are you doing this as a JV or syndications on both the value add and the we are going to be doing these on syndications on a one-off basis. So what we're recruiting capital for right now is a semi-blind pool. And then as we grow and stabilize this existing, we have about 15 million in assets that we're stabilizing currently. We are toying with the idea of potentially setting up a fund just so investors can get in with us now and, and purchase some stabilized assets and go ahead and start generating cash flow today. We see that as a really big need in the capital markets right now, especially with this scared as people are, especially with all the, yeah, the bad news going on in the news and commercial real estate, this. And so we're kind of toying with that idea, but right now it's going to be, yeah, syndication, deal by deal basis. Okay, cool. Syndication, deal by deal basis. You mentioned the word semi-blind pool that triggered the thought that you already have a fund. Is that the case or no? No, that's kind of, again, we're toying with that idea in the back room as far as- that's, That's a future project. Okay. We've got, like I said- six assets across all these areas. Can we throw them into a fund? They're already generating good cash on cash. There's already equity upside. Could we use that as, because we focus on a lot of retail LPs. That's kind of our niche. And it's part of our business model. Could we have that as available to investors, especially newer LPs who are trying to get in the real estate market, who just want something fixed, a fixed five to 6% cash on cash dividend. And with a 14 to 16% upside on the equity over a five-year, seven-year hold, We see a lot of potential for that in the marketplace. And so we're looking at that being that we already have an existing portfolio. Cool. So are you dealing at all in terms of initiatives with like the low income housing tax credit or AKA LIHTC kind of stuff? We do no tax credit housing. Again, I think those are great models, but they're very difficult for small. They're very complex. They're very complex. There's a high barrier of entry for small developers. Bureaucracy. You have to compete. I think sometimes like even have a lottery to see who gets the credits. And It is a relationship business. I stand by the fact, and Revive stands by the fact that the majority of this housing in these major metros is single family to low to medium density housing. And everyone talks about displacement, but no one's talking about the fact that the majority of these neighborhoods that are people are facing displacement are low to medium density neighborhoods. That means the majority of the housing is four units or less. And there's not good infrastructure in place for us to truly build affordable housing models without bulldozing and building ground up through these tax credit models. The problem with that is it takes too much time. 
It takes too much macroeconomic conditions to be favorable. And what we need is a more sustainable model for small-scale developers to be able to make a profit, but also be able to focus on delivering the many affordable housing units that people need and who are facing displacement. And so when you look at on the small scale, there's a huge gap as far as how we structure not only the debt, the equity, the tax credits, you name it, and how we reinvent this idea of affordable housing. So it's not just the big boys and the glass towers who are doing this, but it's everyday small developers like you and me who have a focus on these problems. Cool. So I want to go into initiatives. I'm assuming that this is specific to the building or does it also apply on the value add? We mentioned green building and energy efficiency. I want to cover that separately and distinctly, but you also mentioned initiatives for builders. So I brought up low income housing tax credits to see if that's the kind of initiative you're referring to. Is I'm just trying to explore what are yeah. some of the tools that you have in place and benefits that you're getting from the counties, the governments that help you make this more of a lucrative business model and yet maintain helping people in the process? For us, we're getting no incentives from the local governments for co-living and micro-development other than a few, which I'll mention in a second. But that's okay because we're able to, again, provide a much more stabilized return, even for those technical gurus, anywhere from 50 up to 75, even more basis point spread on a development for co-living and micro-development than traditional multifamily. So we're already getting a better return. And again, we're delivering a class A, class B plus product at the bottom 15% of the rental market. So if someone were to go out and rent a studio in Sacramento, 1650 to 1750, up to $2,000, we're delivering bedrooms at 1250. So again, we don't need tax credits. It would be a great incentive where governments can help and local municipalities can help in this, is it would be great to have tax incentives. I don't really see that, you know, that's not a popular issue for a politician to take on giving credits to developers. But what they can do and what they've already started to do is if is they started to create provisions, zoning revisions. So if you're building a dwelling unit with four to six bedrooms, that may require a parking spot for each individual. And you've seen this in LA with another large-scale developer, 6P Capital, where they've been able to reduce their parking minimums significantly because the units they're delivering are considered affordable. And you see this a lot of times in the development world where it's like, if you're able to deliver product that's affordable to people, we will work with you on open space requirements, parking requirements, which you hear a lot of, or will allow you to increase density and go up to instead of three floors to five and six. And those types of incentives are going to be conducive to allowing co-living and micro-apartments to develop and get those units. Because the one thing that people don't understand is the majority of the people who are moving into these cities still, they're young professionals. These are people that are transient by nature. And they're competing with people of this small to medium density product, the single families, the dues, the tries, the quads. And so if, frankly, if the zoning reforms continue to happen and they continue to kind of get out of the way of developers we will deliver this product and we won't need tax incentives. The product speaks for itself. Now, is there other forms and other means, especially on the value add side? Absolutely. We have some ideas we can stew on if you have some time, but for us, that's kind of the next big item that you need to tackle, which is how do you tackle value add, kind of social element of value add investing? So, you know, what's kind of interesting out of what you said here, which is a government official doesn't want to be viewed as somebody that's giving credits to developers, which is very fascinating because the government cannot provide housing, particularly affordable housing or develop or build or have the resources 
to create housing. So they give us as developers a lot of tax incentives and there's a lot of investing benefits, particularly cost segregation, all these tax incentives and advantages, specifically so that real estate developers and investors are incentivized to go and do something that the government can't do. And yet at the same time, there's government officials that are so concerned with the way that they appear that they don't want to be the guys that are helping the developers because a lot of people look at developers as like rich people when a lot of people in fact are not. But that, right. that plays with this whole paradox is that like, well, who's really the one that's helping and who needs? Is the government needs help from the developers or are the developers, the society thinks of them as these rich people that have all this money that they can create more money by helping people create affordable housing. So that was kind of fascinating. In my days of raising capital, I've come across some groups and particularly larger groups that have said, hey, we have this mission to invest in in green kind of reusable, energy efficient, kind of put solar panels on the roofs. If you guys have some of that in your syndications, we would invest only if that was integrated into your business model. Those are few and far in between, but there are some groups that have that as a business model when they're investing in people. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the green energy efficiency or some of that kind of concepts that you're putting into either your new buildings or your value adds? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I'll take it in what I consider to be the most challenging notion of this. We have two buildings, two of the buildings that we're converting in our, in our markets are historical buildings. So they're over a hundred years old, probably the most inefficient structures from a quality perspective they're amazing. These things were built 130 years ago. Here they still stand today. Obviously, they've been approved along the way, but they're inherently inefficient. They have no insulation. They have are very leaky. What that means is the majority of the conditioner that's being pumped out is being lost. And so in my time in the energy efficiency world, there was an old saying, and it was called build tight, ventilate right, which means that you try to improve the envelope. You try to improve the igloo cooler by adding insulation, but also air sealing. So whatever condition air is being pumped into these buildings, you're actually keeping that condition air and recirculating it through your HVAC system. So the building envelope was really one of the integral pieces. And we're doing that by doing air sealing work, insulation upgrades. We're foaming our roof decks in most cases. We even did that on a fix and flip project locally here. And so that's kind of the first component. So if you can reduce the number of amount of air loss, increase the insulation value, that's a huge moniker right out there. There's a very distinct difference between efficiency and green. Just because a building is efficient doesn't make it green. Some people would argue the fact that we're using spray foam products, that is not a green product. It is petroleum-based. So there's trade-offs in this world. Mm -hmm. And the green building world encompasses not only efficiency, but air quality, durability, is a material that lasts five years more green than one that lasts 15 years especially if the one who's 15 years is made out of petroleum or some other form of non-renewable product. So there's a lot of debate in that world and a lot of nuance that I, I try to avoid. We try to think, what's the best way that we know of right now? And what's the better long-term operating model and durability model? The second piece to this is, the in my time, I've tested over 400, 500 HVAC duct systems. Duct systems are the things that get the conditioned air from your unit to the little supply grill that blows out, okay? That's the simplest way. And I always tell people, imagine a garden hose that goes from your nozzle out. And I'm gonna go into that garden hose and I'm gonna take a little, a little needle and I'm gonna poke about six or seven holes. 
And what happens is there's connections in that ductwork. And so the majority of these systems that we tested on average were leaking anywhere between 25 to 30% of the air Damn. in those systems. So what, what happened in the energy efficiency and green building world is we were so focused on the products and the things that we were putting in, but we weren't focused on the actual core building systems themselves and the delivery systems that are there. And so for me, that's been an integral part. I was boots on the ground, right? I got to see this. And the interesting thing is that while those improvements are simple, excuse me, they're a little bit more challenging to implement, they're very simple fixes. And if they're done thoughtfully and with, with good design, we always say a 14-seer system, which is a code-level air conditioning system with a really tight duct system, will outperform an 18-seer system, which is one of the highest performing forced air systems, air conditioning units you can get with a 20% duct leakage, because it's especially if it's located in an attic, that's 130 degrees during the summertime. And so those are kind of the very baseline improvements that we're making, efficient duct systems, airtight and well-insulated envelopes, and then moving in with more efficient mechanical equipment, because in the majority of these developments, we will be the utility player. And that's a key difference in a lot of these developments. And that's what's kept the implementation of a lot of these measures is that typically the developer is maybe installing these systems, but the developer is not the one paying the utility bills. So what is there's a decoupling between the equipment that gets installed and the person who pays for the long-term operating expense of that. And with fancy term, I'm a tenant, I have my own heating and cooling bill, you developer don't. So what's the incentive for the developer to install that equipment if they're not going to benefit from the long-term savings? No one's going to pay more for an apartment because you installed an 18-seer air conditioning system versus a 14. They don't even know what that is. <laughs> so that's kind of the complexities that we were facing in the apartment sector. When you take into consideration owners, developers who are paying the utility costs, it obviously makes sense. You've already started to see a lot of companies and engineering companies move into this world. There's very simple payback calculations, huge advancements in equipment, in addition to techniques like we've talked about. I would say that's a very short level view. It was a very long-winded view of kind of five and a half, six years of tinkering around in historical buildings all the way up to light commercial and, and multifamily structures. So I geek out on some of the stuff that happens behind the scenes. We don't dive into some of these topics on a regular basis. So I'm having a lot of fun with this. Well, Let great, because that's my passion. And that's what I did. Everything under the sun all the way. I just to tell you very quickly, we were doing encapsulated foam attics in the South. My business partner actually kind of invented this process of going in and using infrared technology along with a, what they call it a blower door, which basically is like a, a big fan you hook up to these houses to pinpoint leaks. And we were having a lot of problems with spray foam attics in the South. And basically he found out why, because one day he turned on the fan and he started to look around with his infrared camera. And what had happened was, is we were no longer ventilating these attics because they were fully insulated with foam, but we were getting all these air leaks. So we had like this hot human air coming in during the summertime and it had nowhere to go. And it was creating just wreaking havoc on these systems. There was a very high technical aptitude of the things we were doing and obviously installing and, and moving forward with new installation types. As you know, there's always unintended consequences when you're integrating new systems. And it really takes someone who's with eyes and ears on the ground and a very high level of technical expertise to diagnose and find them. Otherwise, people are like, hey, I'll never do a spray foamatic. We did it this one time and it didn't work out. 
as with any technological adaptation and implementation, there's always challenges. And then there's the people who, of course, solve those. And, and we were very, I was very fortunate to have a great business partner who had an extremely high level of technical expertise and construction knowledge. So it was really fun. I miss it a little bit, <laughs> not a lot. I was thinking about foaming my attic. I live in like a 1940s ranch style home in Phoenix, Arizona. And obviously we have crazy summers here. So to improve the efficiency of the air conditioning, the objection that I have, I'm curious how it would, you would ever be able to do electrical work if the entire, if you need to get up into the attic and replace wires or fix a short or something, and the whole thing is just like foam, you can't enter or get sure. access. Well, here's the key. You're foaming to your rafters, not to your flat ceiling. So you have the pyramid and then you have your flat ceiling. So because you probably have an air conditioning unit in your attic. Is that right? It's on top of the roof. On top of the roof. But then it goes into a duct system that's in the yes, attic. Yes, right? exactly. That too. Okay. So if you foam at the triangle right there, now what you've done, not only have you, with a ranch style, are you on a slab or are you on a crawl space? Slab. You could reduce your air leakage in your home anywhere between, um, rough calculation, 30 to 50% because you don't have additional penetrations in your crawl space, which is perfect. We did these in very high success rate. And then you'll put your ducts in like a semi-conditioned space. So let's talk offline about that. I think you got an easy fix on a lot of that, man. I can help awesome. you with that. Okay, cool, man. So let's dive into, I know your background. You had mentioned like you were doing commercial lighting and moved into the world of entrepreneurship. This process I kind of want to dive into, which is like getting into development. There's a lot of complexities that people don't consider when they're both on the investor perspective. They're trying to find out like, how can I even learn enough about this process? And if I was ever to do it, like I have to deal with the city and zoning and entitlements and engineering and bureaucracy and working with the, the local governments and mayors and historical and all kinds of things that they don't even contemplate before they can even start even putting together a business model to create architectural sound things that will achieve whatever it is that they're trying to do. It seems very complex for a first-time builder. What made you choose to get into the building to begin with? Was it, yeah, was it I mean, just the energy and green and things that you wanted to do or was there more to it? I gravitate towards complexity. So for me, the value add side was interesting especially taking an old historical building, making it more efficient and doing a complete zoning reform, like rezoning it back to residential use, having to go through landmark commissions. We've done that twice now. For me, the move towards development was really a means of, for my product type and what I'm focused on with co-living and microdevelopment, there's very few assets that make sense that can be easily repositioned. And to do this at scale, to be able to produce enough product to get more investors, especially institutional level investors, we need to do bigger projects and we need to more rapidly deploy projects. And I always thought development was kind of the inhibitor of that. When we first launched our co-living, we said, we're going to do an average of 10 to 50 beds, but we're going to use some interesting zoning arbitrage and focus on these value add products that we feel like we can deploy and get product on the ground faster in these particular markets. And of course, that improved to be an inhibitor for us. We, it, the opposite actually happened. And so for us, it was like, well, we really need a mixture of value add and ground up development to get this product to the ground. And it's really the only time value add deals work is obviously when you can buy below replacement cost, or you can buy at a rate in which you're, you need your buy-in rate plus your value add, right? Your construction cost to convert 
come below with enough profit for you to be able to have your 20% profit or whatever. So it posed a lot of challenges. And so for us, moving into the development was just kind of a natural progression. How we got there, how we did it, we started in value add. That was an increasingly difficult market to be in. It seemed like, especially in small scale under 10 million, two to $10 million deals, everybody was flocking to that space. People were overpaying. So we said, hey, I'm going to kind of go the opposite. So we started focusing on parcel reconfigurations. We've done two parcel reconfigurations where we bought, call it a value add play, basically parceled off a lot through a zone lot amendment or parcel reconfiguration. And then we're going to build ground up next to that. Our project in Denver, again, we went through landmark. We went through building and zoning. We have parceled off a lot next door. And as part of that building process next door, they said, hey, we'll approve it, but you're going to have to go through landmark in order to build it. So not only did we get have to go to get permission to split the lot through zoning, which took nine months, <laughs> then now we have to go through landmark for them to approve the massing. That means like, hey, we approve of the building type. And then we just got approved yesterday to, for them to approve our actual construction materials for the facade. So two rounds of that. Now we get done, we take our construction drawings, we submit that. And then we have to wait another six to nine months to get building and zoning approval from the ground up. Why do I tell you all this? These are small scale projects that we were able to do with very little capital. And the interesting thing is about the parcel reconfigurations is you're kind of creating equity out of thin air. Now I have 350 to $500,000 of equity. In my mind, this was before the interest rates went crazy. In my mind, I could basically go to the bank and collateralize that land that I just created out of thin air because I created a ton of value. Plus the new land value that I plucked from that reduces my basis in the existing property. Again, these were very small kind of, but intricate high level deals. Nobody was willing to go through that brain damage. And for us, it kind of did two things. It helped put the small amount of capital that we had to work and get returns that we hope beat the market and provide a good, continue to build on our existing track record. And two, we can say to our new LPs and potential institutional partners, look at the degree of complexity of the projects that we've taken on. 15 million across six assets, all on a small scale development. We have cut our teeth, man. We have done inherently complex projects at a very small scale. And anyone who's done a project at 35 million, they'll tell you the degree of complexity there is almost the same as the $2 million project. Yeah. And look at how we've handled it. Look at the returns we have. We've proven ourselves as a developer. I kind of think that I did it because I'm inherently driven by the complex and the weird and the, <laughs> the things that seem more challenging. But I'm also passionate about this concept of small-scale development because I do think it is an answer, not only to this bigger question of how we revitalize areas and around urban cores and how we deliver product, but I think it's integral to how we solve the housing crisis problem. And it's not just a one-size-fits-all. It's not just going to be the institutional players who are going to build towers. It's going to be small-scale developers doing the 2 to 35 and even 2 million and below projects. It is a, an integrative recipe. In California, everyone's ecstatic about ADUs. I'm like, ADUs, okay, great. That's like that's a sliver of the whole pie. We still need to address this larger market of getting back to, can we feasibly build a 20 to 30-unit complex? Hell no. Not in today's environment, especially not in an urban core. Maybe 50 miles, 60 miles outside the city. But those are the problems that we've got to tackle if we're going to solve the housing crisis and get our way out of this and really pave the way for building communities that are conducive to upward mobility and less, less reliant on cars, frankly.
Cool. Let's address the elephant in the room that any developer that's listening in is most curious about. Because a lot of developers that I've been talking to, they've been reaching out because they see that I'm in the build to rent space and they're instantly, and well, actually a lot of people in all spaces are reaching out for capital. Hey, can you bring capital? I have this amazing plan. If I just had $20 million, I could triple that money by all of the stuff that I've learned in the development space. These developers, very good at developing, a lot of times they're very horrible at raising capital. So what have you been doing to educate and nurture? You mentioned that you kind of are seeking in the future institutional capital. It'd be very wise. I'd recommend to start building those relationships now because the most successful institutional people that raise money from institutions started at the very beginning going after those guys instead of let's get used to working with LPs and then transfer and switch over to institutional. They start from institutional to begin with. What are you doing to educate, nurture, and talk to investors and convince them to invest or just to let them know about what you're doing to get them to invest with you? I'd like to pivot the the question just for one second and say that not everyone needs outside equity capital or even outside debt to make a deal work. And I was getting ready to syndicate my first 10-unit apartment complex that was a value-add deal that was going to hit an 18% IRR over five years. And I actually spoke to a local syndicator, someone who had done it. He goes, Matt, you don't need to, you don't need to syndicate this deal. You'll make more money if you actually bring on an equity partner, a debt partner, and basically lever 95, 90% of this, and then refi out and rinse repeat. I've done this a couple of times. That was five years ago, four years ago. I'm much more difficult to make that work now. But I think that's the big question is, do you really need outside capital to make your deal work? Because a lot of people are starting out small. If you have a good deal, you can maybe do family and friends capital and cut your teeth. Now, that comes as its own level of challenges. The first thing is, do you really need outside capital to make it work? If you do need outside capital, you got to answer one question. How is this deal or how am I different and my team different than all the other competitors that are out there? This is a high stakes business. I thought just because I had a great idea, I would go out there, be able to stand on the stage amongst 12 other guys at a capital raising conference and raise money. Guess what? I ended up 12 out of 12. (laughs) I was the young guy with a great idea, but... Everyone wanted a track record. They wanted more proof of concept. I was pitching a new product, which even gave me higher barriers of entry. And so capital wants experience and they want proven concept. It's very Mm -hmm. difficult. So that kind of leads me to my next point, which is if you're going to recruit outside capital and you don't have an established team or you don't have established experience in the area, I'm a rarity. I'm one of the few idiots that just dove into this business with very limited experience other than construction, which was kind of my my unique skill set that I thought was going to carry me through and and has to some extent, but you're you're really going to struggle to find that outside investor. And it takes a lot of time. It just takes a lot of time in relationship building. And so to me, it's the big question is, do you really need it? The outside capital first, can you make a couple of deals work? Can you get a proof of concept going with just family and friends capital and then rubber stamp and get that rinse repeat model? Then you can start bringing outside capital because most people aren't going to bet on a first-time sponsor, even if you collectively, the three of you have 10 years of experience. It just doesn't happen. And if they do, they're taking a big cut of the pie. And for me, I made that mistake early on. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to give up that much. I'd rather grow slow and keep more of the pie than grow fast and have to be fractionalized because at the end of the day, I don't want to get in bed on a JV 
partnership with someone I barely know. You could have three or four dinners with someone, but you don't know what people are like until you really get in bed and you sign the contract and all of a sudden the deal starts working and shit starts going wrong. And I just didn't want to put myself in that situation. And I think that's the other important thing that as you're kind of optimizing your business model and your team, there's going to be a lot of hard lessons that you're going to learn. Had I taken outside capital three or four years ago versus raising small family and friends money, and then just kind of doubling down on that, the amount of stress that I would have incurred, given all the things that have gone wrong, all the things that I assumed were going to happen and never did, it would have been far more strenuous having to make those calls and tell my investors being having to come home and just tell my wife about the hard lesson that I learned. My family and friends, I structured it where it was like a straight 8%. It was as equity, but almost like that. And I'll just add very quickly, that's another thing that people have to be careful of too, is that if you're structuring debt on a deal, that's a security. So there's this whole other thing from a securities law perspective that you can actually go to jail for if you're structuring your deal in a loosey-goosey way that the SEC comes back and says, oh no, that's not right. And I think that's kind of the benefit of family and friends capital, close family and friends capital, is you can, I don't encourage anyone to underscoot those rules, but if you know someone as a family member, you can make a handshake deal and feel a little bit better about it at the end of the day. And so coming on the show from a capital raising perspective, again, I'm still very young in my career in this element. We're about to be 15 million of AUM. We've probably raised about 4 million in debt and equity. So still a very small amount, but those are kind of my hard lessons at the end of the day. Because most of what we focused on right now is retail LPs, which is just part of our broader business model. And even that is just backbreaking, man. It is really, really challenging to do that. Uh, capital raising is a full-time job, straight yeah. up. I don't care what you do. To my newer guys out there listening, as soon as you have more than one passive, actually, even as soon as you have one passive investor that doesn't have some security instrument on the note or the deed of the property, depending on what state you're on, you are dealing with security. So be very careful because you can go to, well, I don't know if you go to jail for something like that, but you could lose your ability to raise capital and get fined and the ability to even participate in any deals that is raising capital or real estate projects. So be careful with that. All right, let's dive into the lightning round. Let's start with this question. Best vacation you've ever taken? Okay, so this is hard for me because I took a pre-pandemic vacation to Barcelona with my family. But then the one that came to mind was during the pandemic, my wife and I had long wanted to buy a Sprinter van. And so nice. we ended up buying a Sprinter van during COVID. This was like the world was upside down. So we bought this in June of 2020 and drove it across the country to go see our families because we live in San nice. Francisco. My family was in South Carolina. Her family's in Indiana. So we did the whole thing there and back. Six national parks, 13 states, over 22 days, 23 days on the road with my, at the time, my nine-year-old and my little one-year-old guy. It was a really incredible, it was a really incredible experience. I won't forget that for a while. If you want to know if you can get along with somebody, cram yourself <laughs> into a vehicle with them for 20 days or more. We you know, find out a lot. <laughs> and that's my wife, man. Without her, it wouldn't. Have, she's the glue that keeps us all calm and collected. So cool. Favorite book of any kind. I'm going to go with my most recent one, which is Dan Sullivan. And I'm actually in his coaching program. And it's Who Not How. It's one of those simple books that just took me off my feet, just blindsided me. And I find myself as an entrepreneur constantly inhibited. Oh, I'm never going to get to this or you know, how do I overcome this problem? And it's very fundamental, right? You quit looking at how you do things and who are the right people that 
can put the ball in motion for you. And then how do you build those partnerships, those relationships? And, you know, that was very fundamental. It still doesn't make it easy. You still need capital. You still need all those things. But when you start looking at it in that framework, it really changed my mind, my mindset in a lot of ways. And, you know, not only that, but it, it made me start thinking about like how I structure my business and that it's really at this point, once you've kind of moved beyond you being the person driving the business, it really becomes about the team and everyone else. And I think that's, as you're trying to scale something, that's an incredibly important lesson. So anyone who's kind of at that facet of their business, I think it's an even more applicable book and everything that Dan Sullivan writes is, is really fantastic. How long do you want to live? He actually has an exercise where he says, if you could live too, how many years would you think? And I think my number was like 115, but that's based on mobility and having a right mind and all of that. Otherwise, I'd say, nah, just feed me to a grizzly bear or something in the woods. Imagine yourself healthy at whatever age you want to be as my recommendation to the audience. Best way yeah. to raise capital from your perspective. Short answer on that. Short answer right now, just what we're doing. We're grinding out content. We're doing paid ads. We're building a robust retail LP platform for a lot of reasons. To me, that's our path. That's what we're sticking to. It's the one that I believe in. And I think it'll be the, the one that benefits my company and the future companies that we're going to create in the long term. What's the most desirable trait that a developer or syndicator can possess? Persistence. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are or poor. You're going to be gutted and just left for dead day in and day out. And it's just, I can't even tell you the amount of growth it takes to just get gutted, lay in bed, feeling like you, you can't even wake up the next day. And then you, you get your ass up at six o'clock the next morning and you get back in the ring and you start swinging again. <laughs> uh, I can totally relate. Can you tell me about a moment that changed the trajectory of your life? I think it goes back to that duplex and my experience with Miss Pam, understanding what was happening, this world of displacement, pushing people, working class people further and further outside of job cores, suburban sprawl, all these things that are, I think, fundamental to not only the socioeconomic issues that we have in this country, but the upward mobility issues, which I, those are obviously in line. So I go back to Miss Pan, just my experience in, with her, which there's that stories on our website and how she inspired me and just how the other hardworking people, including my father over the years, have inspired me and how much real estate is conducive to people's quality of life. And for me, that was the inspiration for a lot of this and it, it continues to drive me every day. What do you love about fly fishing and outdoor activities? It makes you feel incredibly small. At the end of the day, to be able to go out there and you're in the other universe and you look at the Milky Way and there's thousand galaxies out there, you realize again, how small we are as human beings and how limited our time is in this. We're flipping the whole spectrum. And I think that's the coolest perspective to gain in addition to not having any cell service and no one to answer to and all that fun stuff. It takes the Milky Way galaxy 200 million years to orbit just one time. <laughs> just think about that for a second, guys. Have you ever experienced a miracle or had a near-death experience? No, I haven't. I'm going to knock on some wood real quick. Last question brought to you by Shannon Amigo. She'd like to know what impact would you like to leave in the world? I think for me, the big idea that I've been stewing on at this point is creating some form of incubator that incubates the next level of round of developers who don't come from the socioeconomic class that maybe I did or others have, who didn't have the opportunity or trying to, but have a good idea. And it could be something small, how they're, how they're gonna bring fresh groceries to a typically underserved minority community. It could be how they're gonna create a community center 
and allowing them to grow and scale and productize that solution and then build it out across the world. I think those people are the ones that already have the solutions in their mind. They just don't have the access to capital. They don't have the tools and experience to get there. And so helping those people create solutions to what I consider to be problems in the built environment, they're going to build better communities, improve access to people and increase upward mobility. If I can do that from now until the day I die, I, I'll die a happy man. Rock and roll. Very cool answers on the lightning round. Shout out to the Capital Razor Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Please leave us a five-star written review. Shout out to our sponsors, Syndication Pro and PitchDex.com. Check out our new Capital Raising Coaching program at the Capital Razor Show website, CapitalRazorShow.com. All right, Matt, how does the audience get a hold of you, my friend? Yeah, just go on our website, revive-vib.com. There's a link on there. You can book a calendar appointment with me. Ellen's my assistant. She'll help coordinate on my behalf, get some context. And yeah, that's the best way to learn about everything we're up to and also to, to get a hold of us. Sweet. Any last words of wisdom for the aspiring capital raiser or syndicator or developer as they scale on their journey? Yeah, I go back to the perseverance. Just keep grinding, keep learning. Go try to find the people who have already been there. Find those who's who are willing to share their experiences, their hard lessons. There's something to be said for that. And don't go at it alone. Don't be afraid to ask for advice. Don't be afraid to try to seek input from people who have already been there. It can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. Matthew Ryan in the house, dude. Very cool meeting you, man. I'm glad that we got to hang out here and kind of explore a bunch of different topics together, man. This has been a blast. Mm -hmm.